A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and the CEO of Howl and Roar Records, as well as the host of Sirius XM's The Breakdown, Allison Dorr. With our current cultural fascination with the con artist, it's easy to think that the internet invented the grift. And it is true that it makes it easier to take advantage of people and disappear into the night. But the true year of the con artist is 1988. In fact, the Los Angeles Times deemed it the year of the flim-flam. In part because of the stock market crash in 1987, it made a lot of people desperate to recoup their money in any way they could. To reflect on this, there's a ton of movies in 88 about con men and scandals. Let's get into just a few of the biggest ones that were coming to a head at the end of the Reagan administration. Now, I think the one people are probably most familiar with at this point because of all the movies is like Jim and Tammy Baker. This is the year that they were... They were fully arrested. Everything had come to light of exactly what they'd done. They were doing their sob tour on uh, PTL. Mm -hmm. Like, it's... And I I wonder, like, with the most recent revival of, like, there was the documentary and then there was the the movie that Mm -hmm. won, I I think, an Oscar. Yeah, Chastain at least got an Oscar. Just one. That's the one people are most familiar with, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you you posted a bunch of weird scams. And I, I didn't know half of them. Uh, they were. I'm a scam you know. sucker. Are you a scam sucker, uh, Allison? Does this stuff just kind of fascinate you? Oh, oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know the terrible mm. scams. I want to know the great scams. I want. I love this stuff, and I think partially because it's so beyond me. Mm. I'd love. I I'd love to think I could be a grifter. <laughs> could not. Couldn't do it. No. In the middle of it, I go, oh, God, I'm lying. (laughs) Um, But I think it is so fascinating to me. And the people that pull it off, what? Yeah. I just want to see the ones that we've never caught. That's the thing is you will never know about the ones that have never been caught. But like the ones that I think it's the people that get too big for their britches and too arrogant. Like the Barry Minkow Z-Best carpet scam is like amazing. That the initial one that he started doing it when he was 15 years old, this grift, like, are you familiar with this one, Allison? You must I'm be. not, but but I love that it's a teen because there's yeah. a, there there are a lot of stories of people who in their teens that's when they really started getting their grift. Yes. Oh, it gets and worse with Barry Minkow because he started when he was 15 with this carpet cleaning thing, and he was getting like all this press about this teen entrepreneur, and he was skimming people's credit cards. Mm. And doing extra charges and stuff. And then this escalates to he gets enough money when he's like 18, 19, that he starts having a quote unquote renovation company. None of these renovations exist. They're just getting investors in like it's a Ponzi scheme he's running. We're just getting investors in these these companies to the point where he actually brings a group of investors to a building he does not own. They just paid off the security company. We're just showing them around Mm. like they owned this place. They just found a building that was like roughly the right size at the right construction type. Like it's it's crazy. So then he gets caught, goes to prison, becomes a born again Christian. When he comes out again, (laughs) he becomes the ultimate minister. Yeah, well, he becomes, no, this gets worse. He becomes a minister. And then like like Frank Abagnale, he starts being like having his own like scam watch like Mm. uh, podcast and things. But to have that, he starts extorting companies and shorting <laughs> companies, being like, yes. I'm going to put you on my scam watch in and like just hammers them and brings down their stock value in exchange. And then it's only recently in like last five years, they just caught him again. So he's basically a lifelong grifter. It's wild. So that's very Minkow. I just found out that Frank Abagnale's story is probably not yeah. true. It is not and true. And so I went down that whole rabbit hole 
and going like, oh my God, this, I mean, he's, he's the, I bought his books. I I mean, I I do think that it's parts of it aren't real. Like part of, parts of it are real, but. The jet setting part is. Yeah, the jet setting and the. People, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that's a big old lie. And I'm like, I watched that movie and hook, line, and sinker, baby. You got me. Uh, We're talking about Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. I mean, it's a, yeah, I think it's a bit of a, like a Confessions of a Dangerous Mind situation, you know, where he (laughs) made it cooler because, like, he did scam people and he did work for the FBI afterwards as a deal. Didn't he? Did he? I think he did. I, he did. Oh yeah, he totally did. He worked. He did work for the FBI. He, but it's all but boring. The scamming people, like a lot of the scams that he took credit for, they've yes, it, it's they're like none of this yeah. happened. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So that th- that's the thing to me that's so. I mean, we get a lot. We're about to get. Uh, speaking of, of hucksters, uh, and I, I, I yes. think his is kind of. I wonder if there's racism involved, but that we're getting that upcoming evil Longoria movie about the hot Cheetos guy where. After mm. his book came out, they disproved it. It's like this guy did not invent hot Cheetos at all. And, and there's like mm. pretty good reporting that's like, no, it was a lady. And, you know, and, and the, the weird thing is, this kind of, you know, Frito Lay is like, I guess, whatever. Like they kind of let it happen because they're like, okay, yeah, it's cute. This guy's going to go around. But then he like started being a motivational speaker and stuff. And they, uh, they're like, oh, oh, no, 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 this was uh, not. This guy had uh, very little to do with it. And it's like... Interesting. Yeah, it's it, The lying about lying is so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, also, I love that these guys, the kind of common thread in a lot of these 88 scams is they just kept doing it till they get caught. And it seems like they want to get caught. Or they're like a serial killer who kind of like, if they're not edging getting caught, they don't like it. Yeah, They want their intelligence mm-hmm. to be known and acknowledged. I think a lot of the, in a lot of yes. the cases, right? And the thing that to me boggles my mind is a lot of the time when these guys get caught, all the money gets found. And it's like, okay, if you were that yeah. smart, <laughs> yes. you would have hidden most of this money. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I think you don't. <laughs> I mean, there's one guy who I, I hadn't heard of before, before I was like scams in 1988. And I just went down the list and there was like um, a woman who was pretending to be a um, Onassis heir mm-hmm. and like uh, Christina Onassis, uh, <laughs> Aristotle's daughter. Like there's a whole thing. But then I got to Kerry D. Ketchum, who faked his wife's death for the insurance. Then he ripped off $200,000 in equipment from the Air Force where he works. And then he goes on the game show Super Password under a stolen identity, becomes the biggest winner in the history of the game, and then gets caught because someone recognizes him yeah. on TV. <laughs> this person just... was like, yeah, you can't go on TV. What are you doing? Yeah. He didn't use his own name, no. so it was fine, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these sickos, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just interesting. And especially, like, you are really seeing, but it's it's fun. Like, you, when you're watching these movies, especially from 88, like, we're going to watch it with a fish called Wanda. And, like, you love um, Wanda and you mm. love the Kevin Klein character. Like, you love Otto. Sure. Because they're just so incompetently dumb, but also simultaneously really good at what they're doing. Like, it's it's a really weird combination. And this is also the same year as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Michael Caine and um, mm. Steve Martin, Steve, which is, yeah, again, so a, a super fun movie where you're watching people whose arrogance overtakes them, right? And then yeah. they just get... it's. I think that's what we love about these con uh, con movies is the outsmarting. The out, It's fun to watch the outsmarting happen. That's why everyone liked Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that trilogy <laughs> because I could write a dissertation. <laughs> I love those movies. Mm-hmm. 
they're fun. They're super fun. And they're full of personality, right? Yes. Well, let's get into our first movie today. So for me, the fascination I have with white collar and heist crime is that they're often so layered. In A Fish Called Wanda, it's a heist within a heist within a heist. But it's also a clever comedy. So clever, in fact, that it was nominated for three Oscars, one for director, one for script, and it won for Best Supporting Actor, giving Kevin Klein his only Oscar, which was surprising to me because I thought at least they would give him one for Sophie's Choice. Nope, mm. Fish Called Wanda. Mm. That's it. Uh, that they didn't nominate Jamie Lee Curtis is a travesty that we will get into. It's wild. Like, she hadn't even been nominated up until mm-hmm. the most recent one, which is just bizarre to me. Okay, Cam, let's talk about A Fish Called Wanda. Do you want to give the good people a brief plot summary on this one? Sure. Yeah, it's actually, it's it's not too tough. It's, it's like, uh, essentially, there's this jewel heist uh, and a bunch of kind of criminal characters. Uh, they're silly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we... Within the heist crew, uh, we we are already knowing that there's kind of two of them that are going to double cross uh, uh, another guy. And Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of the femme fatale throughout playing various men. Uh, but when the jewel heist uh, goes awry, th- their plan uh, was to set up the one guy and just take the money and leave. Um, but he's a little ahead of them. He hides the money. So then they're kind of stuck in this situation where Jamie Lee Curtis was going to screw everybody and take the money. So now she kind of has to string along with guys she hates. They realize that the lawyer might be the key to finding out where the money is, who is John Cleese. Uh, And yeah, it's just this kind of push and pull. Michael Palin, also there's an old lady who was a witness uh, that Michael Palin is trying to kill. Um, Yeah, it's just kind of, and then it's like a farce. It ends up being this whole thing where, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is trying to seduce John Cleese. And all these silly situations happen. That's it. They're just trying to get <laughs> now, money. There's so many comedies, especially from the 80s, that you are just like, oh, that doesn't hold up. Oh, I wish they hadn't made that joke, et cetera, et cetera. How did this one hold up for you guys in terms of the actual comedy itself? It, it, you know, I was thinking about this after I watched it. I don't know that I, that I feel like it doesn't hold up, um, but mm. I find it less charming i'm i don't know what it was. i was watching it and i was like i feel like i don't love this movie anymore <laughs> and I, I can't pinpoint it but it's kind of boring i think it's aged yeah. no i don't know i think it's just aged like it, it does like i truly do wonder if a young person would find much obviously there's farce bits that are quite there's like they're funny no matter what but i do remember that like this was like i mean we'll get into it but this was like considered the funniest movie of yeah. all time for like 10 years. And that's, I, I think what works is almost less the funny stuff and more the, like, it's just a good plot and a good uh, crime, you know, movie. I, I don't think know. Jamie Lee Curtis is the the thing that saves the movie today. And certainly, mm. yeah, it is a travesty that everyone got nominated, but her, how dare you? She's holding this whole thing together. <laughs> She is so delightful. And what I love about her is, look, she is a very beautiful woman. And yet there's something about her that's so approachable. And she made a career out of being um, a woman who kind of looks like a soccer mom, but then is very sexy, right? Mm. And so she is just, she's the smartest person in the movie. She's lovely and yet uh, can lie right to your face. And she's the thing that saves it for me. I feel like watching it this time around. I mean, Kevin Klein, look, I love the man. <laughs> How do you not? Now, now this role, though, I'm like, it just feels like a lot. 
It just feels like a lot. Oh, see, I, I still like him. I think that that, I don't know, that charms me still. Oh, but he, yeah. He, it's know. not that I hate him. I was just like, Otto's, he's mm. a bit over the top. He's a bit sure. over the top. Yes. Yes. It kind of fits totally though, because the whole movie is a little over the top. Like, but that's also John Cleese. Mm -hmm. Like, of all the Pythons, I think he is the one who is is the most over the top in terms of like the emotions Mm -hmm. are always the biggest. Like, he made a career on being angry. Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's what he does. And it's weird that he that Otto is actually playing the John Cleese role in this. Like, if John Cleese was younger, that's the role he would be playing, right? Totally. I also do think that John Cleese, weirdly, I appreciate his performance a lot more Mm -hmm. this go around because he is doing both good straight man stuff, but also just very quiet, silly stuff. Um, like, yeah, the, I mean, the, there's a part where Otto just bursts in to save him and he has no idea that Otto's been there the whole time. And he just has this weird blank expression that is so funny and like so much funnier than all of the wackiness going on around him. Um, and he doesn't, yeah, that's not his usual thing. He was not usually the kind of straight man. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a very unusual feeling movie. And, uh, I mean, we'll get into it. But I definitely think one of the things is like we this is by like a very classic British director. It's like one of his final movies. And it feels a lot like those movies, which are like they're the same thing where like an old British person will tell you like, oh, boy, the Lavender Hill mob. (laughs) And you watch it and they're like, there's almost like this is a fine movie. It's like an Ocean's Eleven, but there's a borderline no laughs to me, modern man. And yeah, I wonder if this is just aging in the same way. All right. Well, let's talk a bit about Charles Crichton and get into the Ealing, the Ealing stuff. I love that one of the Ealing comedies was called Whiskey Galore! Exclamation point. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've only seen a handful of them. I mean, people, the, the big ones people probably know is are, are most of the, like the Lady Killers is probably the most famous in America because it got that terrible remake with Tom Hanks. Um, but they were this series of films which only lasted about 10 years uh, post-war and they are kind of like this movie where it was really about people who were kind of hard-edged. I think it was kind of implied in some of the modern ones that these people had been through the war and kind of didn't give a shit anymore. Uh, taking advantage of dumb British people, like British people being kind-hearted and like, oh, gee whiz. Uh, and these people would be kind of evil. So lady killers are trying to kill a lady. Uh, Lavender Hill mob, they steal all this gold bullion and are trying to... And it's like a, a mild-mannered bank teller who kind of just has been pushed too far. Um, and they all star uh, Alec Guinness, which is again like a thing that by my time I'm like, oh, what? Juan, what are you uh, doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That, this isn't your thing. But he, they invented also like the weird thing is is they were of the time they were like the Adam Sandler of their time because a lot of these films starred Alec Guinness in multiple roles with prosthetics and stuff. Uh, it's what inspired Peter Sellers to go on to do that because he's like his first movie is one of these. So, yeah, it's it's just this weird thing where, again, I can watch them and be like, this is a good movie, but I am not, you know, they were the funniest things at the time. They changed British culture. And, and the interesting thing is John Cleese, I guess, you know, met Charles Crichton, who directed most of the major ones. And they met in the 60s. And, you know, because J- John Cleese was kind of an up and coming cool comedy person and they always wanted to work together. And it took them, you know. Uh, the better part of 25 years to <laughs> come together. And they were always working on this idea. And the only, the first ideas they came up with was Cleese wanted a stuttering person to have to impart information quickly. And Crichton wished for a scene where a character is run over by a steamroller. 
So that, that was that <laughs> was what by they started with. They and had the technology to be able to run someone over with yeah. a steamroller. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, but I love that it's like yeah, and yeah. So it's interesting because it is this guy from what I would consider a previous generation to John Cleese, but who was the cutting edge comedy guy. And John Cleese, who was the cutting edge comedy guy, and it's a little further in, but this was cutting edge. It was it was considered very dark and very wild for its time. Well, what's wild to me is that they wanted to go even darker with it. So when they first started with test audiences, like when they kill the dogs, which I'm not a big like kill the dog person, it always really bothers me. Mm. But I do think the cartoony Looney Tunes sort of way they do it here works for mm-hmm. the tone, so that you're not totally pulled out with like, oh my god, they killed the dog. Apparently, when they did like the car <laughs> running over it, there were like doggy guts on the ground. They had to guts, reshoot it because yeah. it was too much. That's so funny. I wish you could see oh, Allison's no. face. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. That dog that's, guts on this movie. Yeah. It, it would be a very different vibe. That's some of the stuff I'm like, okay, I don't quite get why they made these changes. That one's like, why the hell did you ever put yeah. dog guts? It's way too that much. Is, uh, but I also think there is something so funny about Michael Palin's character just being this animal lover. And so he doesn't care about mm-hmm. killing this old lady. Like he does yes. in the sense that he can't bring himself to just, you know, cosh her over the head. But at the same time, he he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll kill this old lady. And inadvertently, the dogs keep getting caught in his traps. So he is more devastated <laughs> instead yeah. of just like, you should have just killed the old lady, buddy. Um, and yes. so there is something yet, because normally I'm also like, how dare you? If yeah. the dog dies, I'm not watching. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it is literally taken from cartoons, the way these dogs die. Yes, yes. And that, that they yeah, they reshot that cartoonishly flattened dog that looks like a uh, like a roadrunner situation <laughs> and, we, and it ends up being great and then layers yes yeah. very very because funny because michael yeah, palin's devastated <laughs> totally and that's the other like you can tell from a lot of the talks of the reshoots is they didn't expect audiences to uh, like associate with michael palin so much they they saw him as like a kooky goofy character but the fact that audiences liked him and were like yes i agree i also feel this way kind of baffled them because they were a lot meaner it's it's hard to tell what else but apparently kevin klein torturing him was much more extreme and they had to reshoot a lot of that because people were like no we like that guy that's yeah. the guy we like he's, he's a nice guy, even though he's killing they an old lady the, apparently yeah. he was suffocating for longer like there was things like that and it, yeah it just wasn't yeah. as funny it was more like Ugh. i mean even now it's a pr- still a pretty yeah, intense yeah. torture scene but it's just it's so goofy with the chips up the nose and also we should say yeah. that moment yeah. was so funny it literally killed someone someone literally died in the theater laughing watching that scene <laughs> So it's uh, apparently it was something that he had actually done with his family at dinner time, but involving cauliflower. Uh, so it was a family in joke, and he laughed so hard he had a heart attack and died. I guess stems. Yeah, yeah then, stuffing it up, it, stuffing it, a cauliflower it, up your nose is hard. It would be funny having the fluffy part of the cauliflower sticking out of your nose. I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry <laughs> that man died. Yeah. But that is interesting to know because, yeah, it, I think that had they gone with that darker tone, a lot of the movie is very farcical, right? Yeah. So if there was these weird yeah. moments that were super dark, it it would have been a really uneven, bizarre Even when he gets run over by the steamroller at the end, he pops back up, right? He's just covered in cement. Yes. So it's like, yeah, he's fine. Yes, um, you yes. Know. Yeah, he does the, the hanging onto the wing like a cartoon, <laughs> yeah. By that point, it's also like a buildup of this cartoon logic almost because it starts like a pretty somewhat serious gangster comedy. We don't even really realize how stupid and wacky Otto is 
No, it takes a while. A little yeah. further in. Yeah. I think for me, the yeah. only change that I genuinely don't agree with is at the end, Wanda was supposed to betray him. And I think that's the ending I actually want. I, and they, they, they hint that she's going to. So you never actually see it, but yeah. they hint at it. And I was like, that's what I want. Like, and when you're watching yeah. it, you're like, there's no way she's in love with this doofus. Like, there's no way. And you've watched yeah. her play I, I mean, man after man after man, right? So you're like, I want to see her do one more. Let's go. I, I want to see the sequel with her. I want to believe they fell in love. <laughs> Are you? Uh, you're a test audience yes. participant, Allison Dorn. <laughs> yeah. What what they said was that, that, that the audience has just actually bought their chemistry, like, too much. Um, because, yeah. She's too yeah, smart. He's yeah. bored and stuck in this life. And mm-hmm. so I feel like, okay, look, I don't want to admit this. I like to pretend I'm a cold-hearted person who hates romance, but in a way I'm watching it going, yes, I do buy it. He, Because the other thing that they do so well, we don't care that he's cheating on his wife. Yeah, they his wife is a very good make, character. Yeah, the wife and the daughter were like, well, yeah, he barely knows those so people, evil. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't care about him. And she's fun and interested in his work and he's coming alive and she's finally met someone who's as smart as her. And um, so, yeah, I'm I'm the test audience. <laughs> I'm the one who is like, yeah. yes, I want them to end up on that plane. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, the funny thing is that, that I think it was Jamie Lee Curtis that said she's like, you know, there's a bunch of changes that she's disappointed in, but she's like, you also can't really give a shit when your movie was a massive hit that everybody mm. liked. She's like, those, I, that means those changes were correct. She's like, I can feel whatever way I, I want to feel. Yeah, but, she uh, specifically says, you know, sometimes... I did not go happily. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, yeah. But all of them kind of say it's interesting because it's like a time where everyone involved is like the test audience was very important and those changes probably made it a classic. Well, it's one of the yeah. few movies that saved MGM. It was one of the first, well, kind of. It's one of the first original movies that was made with the leader new MGM uh, before before the third sale. This is the second sale of MGM. Yeah. So the history of MGM is extremely complicated, especially in this, in this time period. Uh, we're going to be talking about, like, the real wild stuff when it comes to Giancarlo Peretti in a future episode of 1991 where we talk about Soap Dish and um, Delirious. It's wild. Oh, uh, Allison, you're going to want to listen to this one because you're going to want to hear the story of Giancarlo Peretti. This guy is nuts. So I love Soap Dish so much. Oh, it's great, eh? It's great. And our guest, I'm going to tell our audience, our guest for that episode is uh, someone who was actually there. He was an actor during the Luke and Laura series seasons of uh, General Hospital. So uh, Allison's face is great. <laughs> That's so exciting. That's your preview. It's a great episode. I can't recommend it enough. That one's coming up very, very soon. Set your calendars. Make sure you like and subscribe. And, uh, I believe a Soap Dish TV show is forthcoming on one of the streamers. There's a Hulu yeah. one coming. So, so yeah, so yeah. that's coming. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is coming back, it seems, for that one. So mm-hmm. that's Rose. So it's going to be good. But I want to talk about uh, Kirk Krikorian <laughs> and Ted Turner and kind of what happened here. Uh, mm. Cam, do you know a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is just Ted Turner being a psychic. In the eighties, basically, <laughs> he loved to. He was kind of obsessed with old film and kind of not. He knew that there was a market for old film. I mean, he was uh, the thing I always love to talk about. Uh, nobody wants to talk about is uh, he's the guy who like colorized movies. A lot of people forget that, but that was like Ted Turner's big gamble was trying to rebroadcast black and white movies colorized uh, in the early eighties. And yeah, so he wanted some of the MGM catalog, so he kind of came in 
took what he wanted. He really wanted Gone with the Wind, right? That's it. Yeah, that was what he wanted. Yeah. So, but he took a he took a good chunk. The Turner classic movies, perhaps you've heard of them. Uh, that is a lot of Turner's library. It's what launched Turner classic yeah. movies. Was the MGM? Uh, the and MGM I mean, library. he made great buys. But to this day, Turner classic movies actually does have a great catalog. And, you know, he predates the Criterion Collection and stuff. So in some ways he was preserving films, uh, but I don't think a lot of film preservationists like what he did. And then, like, uh, yeah, as you pointed out, you sent an article where it's like he also he took all those movies and then was like, uh, yeah, burn the rest. <laughs> like he uh, he threw out records. It's the usual thing you hear about where, like, Debbie Reynolds is dumpster, dumpster diving to get the ruby slippers and stuff. Like, he did not care about film history. He just cared about how those movies could make him money. Yeah, and it's interesting is the guy who bought it originally, Kirk Kerkorian, uh, started out as a prize fighter, realized that he wasn't going to be a good prize fighter, So, but he knew he had to make money. So then he starts taking these high-risk plane trips during World War II, flying from Nova Scotia to Scotland, where only one <laughs> in four planes made it. So it was like super high risk. So he does that, survives. Then he goes to Nevada and starts this like plane charter business when Vegas was just really starting up, makes enough money that he's able to buy parcels of land in Vegas, buys the land that the current Las Vegas Strip is now on, opens three of his own his own uh, places, including like what was the Bella or what the Bellagio was going to become. He owns where Caesar's Palace would be. When he opens MGM, he's the one who opened the original MGM Grand uh, on the strip. So he becomes this like Vegas billionaire, but he's still bored. So he decides he wants to buy stuff in Hollywood and he just starts buying up different portions of different studios, not mm. actually wanting to make movies, just liking the idea of owning them. At which point he buys and sells MGM three separate times to people who just strip it more and more and more and just basically just completely trash the history. Uh, and then the final purchase being Giancarlo Peretti, which is a whole other story, which I'm very excited to get into. But this guy is just a fascinating human being who apparently ran tangential to the mob in Vegas. Mm. And he's also known for, the, for, for being the guy who let... Um, uh, Al Pacino out of his contract because he'd had enough dealings with the mob to know that if he didn't, <laughs> he uh, he would be in big trouble. So it's uh, interesting, interesting human beings. And this is one of the very few movies that actually got made and it's that it's this good. I think yeah. it's a testament to I mean, how I'm, good the directors were and the, the people who put this together. Yeah, I think it's also just, you know, British stuff was... Uh... A British comedy was quite unusual at the time, I will say. British movies were, were dominating the Oscars, uh, you know your chariots of fire and what have you but this is the era um, we'll get into david putnam in the next episode this sure. is the era of david putnam over yeah. at columbia <laughs> um did you guys watch that promotional trail clip from 88 for with phil donahue only a little <laughs> a little it's wild did you see this allison I didn't. Okay. It's uh, adorable. And I recommend if people want to see Jamie Lee Curtis being so cute, please go watch this because she's all... So the audience is asking all of these questions. And one woman actually asked John Cleese if he can explain British humor to her. So that's he actually gives a, he, her, he, he gives a fairly real explanation, though, to his credit. He could have been a little shit about it, but he doesn't. Well, he basically just talks about how, yeah, there's some cultural differences uh, that do not play in America that would play in UK comedy. But the biggest part is that he's like, I wrote, you should see Fish Called Wanna because I wrote the American characters with Americans with the help of my producer. And it's a lot faster, a lot quicker, and it's definitely not as subtle. And then he's taking too long with his response. So Jamie Lee Curtis falls asleep on him and starts snoring. It's adorable. 
And I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is like all over the place in this interview. She's like putting her shoe in his mouth. She kisses John Cleese near the beginning of the interview. So he's got lipstick on his face for almost all of it. She's like just climbing all over the place. You can really tell how much fun all of them seem to have had when they were making this movie because it's they're having a ball doing this interview. I mean, that's kind of kind of a cool thing is that John Cleese, like, I mean, he, he took a, a long time to write it, but he also wrote it with pretty much every actor in mind which is very interesting. He said he saw Trading Places and wanted Jamie Lee Curtis immediately. And that's like, and it's, he said he saw Trading Places just because his daughter like was like, I want to go to a movie. And he's like, fine, fine. But, and he said, it sounded like he didn't really like Trading Places, but it was like, that lady's amazing. So that's, yeah, I think that there's that kind of mutual respect. And like him and Kevin Klein apparently went on a 10 day vacation to Jamaica to figure out Otto, which is like a whole, you know, you, you don't do that much with, comedies these days at all. Nobody really puts that care into it. I was having a conversation with an actor yesterday about sort of the British sensibility about performance Mm. versus um, North American. And I do think there's something to be said about the approach Britain's take about both acting and comedy and film in that it's, it's almost like you would call it a blue collar approach Mm. versus, you know, North America's more white collar, right? We love to get all method and I got to put myself in that where their approach is very like you do the work like Mm -hmm. it's not magic. And so it kind of doesn't surprise me to hear that. And yeah, I don't think that that really a happens. um, We don't like we don't respect comedy the way we should in North America. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think anyone would ever be like, let's go to a retreat and really (laughs) hammer out this insane character. But, oh, two things I want to say really quick. Yeah. To go back to what Cam said, I love understated John Cleese. Mm-hmm. I think his performance in this is like one of my favorite John Cleese performances ever because it is so contained and the humor is from his reactions and all that kind of stuff. I want to make love with you, Wanda. I'm a good lover. At least used to be back in the early 14th century. The other thing is, the sex scene with Kevin Klein, where we get the big old yeah, sure. uh, the orgasm you know, close up on the that is one of the funniest like or man having an orgasm scenes yeah. ever. And again, it's the understatement in a sense, right? It is very big, but it's also very contained. And um, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And watching it again, I was like, yeah, that's that's the genius of Kevin Klein and what they're doing here. Now, you're someone, Allison, who, uh, let's just say you listen to a lot of comedy, you see a lot of comedy, you know a reasonable amount about comedy and comedians. If you were to remake this, what parts of it would hold up best? Would it be the farce? Like, we don't really do farces now, and I think it's kind of a lost art because it requires so much construction. What do you, what do you think? That's a really great question. I think... Yeah, I I don't know if if you would be able to to do it in the same way. Like it would it would almost become a completely different movie. And for some reason, the first thing that comes to mind is like you got to put Melissa McCarthy in it. Yeah, sure. easily. You know what I mean? She would be kind of got probably. <laughs> yes, yes. She Listen, would. okay. Now I'm into it. Now I'm into it. Let's remake yeah. this movie. Um, and yeah, oh, we don't. I do somewhat miss, I get nostalgic in a way for the more farcical stuff, but I think 
to do it today, it would just come off as gimmicky maybe or too much. Yeah, I think there's a misunderstanding because like you're saying, the understating of the the thing is that the emotions here are real. Like you yes. you buy their, mm. you buy the fact that Otto gets like extremely angry when people call him stupid. It's a real button for him. Not unless you're congenitally insane or irretrievably stupid, no. Don't call me stupid. Why well, not not? Oh, you English are so superior, aren't you? Yes. By the relationship that I'm still not entirely clear what it is between um, Ken and George. Like, obviously, there is like some sort of loyalty there that you're like, where yes. did that come from? You know, you buy all of these relationships. And I think that's what fundamentally underpins this is that these are real people who have known each other for a long time who, you know, when the betrayals happen, they're real betrayals. And that's the fine line, I think, with this type of performance and, and farcical comedy is that you can get away with doing a lot of things big, but you need to know, yeah, what are the underpinnings? What are the things that have to be there? And those relationships and who those people are, there has to be a genuineness. And I think we have a tendency, again, in North America in the last, like, let's say 20, 30 years with comedy, if it's going to be farcical, it's nothing but big. Yeah. yeah. And you don't emotionally connect to it. Yeah. I think like bridesmaids is one of the few things I can kind of think of where like they there there is a bit of that. Like there's some there's a far, some farcical elements to that. It's not a full farce, but there's farcical yeah. elements to it, especially the scene that in the true. in the bridal uh the bridal salon. Well, yes, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah this is a good point. That yeah. is a good point. That that whole group and director and everything is perfect. Yeah. So yeah. they can do whatever they want. And I don't know who else would be able to pull it off. Yeah, it seems like nowadays you'll have a farce moment like like mm-hmm. that. Like you'll have a farce set piece. Uh, and yes. to be fair, this does have more traditional farcical. Like like I was saying, the what part where he, he's hooking up. Both Kevin Klein and Jamie Lee Curtis are trying to hide in the same room yes. while his wife and daughter are coming in. That's like very classic. And I think that that kind of set mm-hmm. piece might happen. But that still only happens, as you're saying, in like the A tier. And that's the weird thing where like sometimes, you know, QB Halloween does that better than whatever A-list comedy because I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> well, <laughs> because- in the, as we're fi- in the final moments here, we should talk about just the constructions where um, he literally went, John Cleese literally went and bought little like war figurines mm-hmm. uh, f- to uh, reconstruct how the farce would actually work. Like if this Amazing. person's here, how does this look? Like that's the level we're talking about here, the workmanship of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the work and really nailing it and taking it seriously and being like, it's important and to figure out. And he took notes from other people as well. So like Jamie Lee Curtis was the one who was, he's like, and then you get caught naked. And she's like, I've done that a lot. So why don't you get caught naked? And he was like, yeah, hundred percent. Sounds like he was immediately like, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very interesting. And I do think it's the difference too, between, I mean, I bring this up all the time, but I think these movies were very written and directed because they were shot on film and they knew that like, we have to make this funny before we do it. Whereas now I think, Mm. you know, digital and improv and Judd Apatow, unfortunately, as much as I I loved (laughs) him at a time uh, has kind of made it that it's like, we'll figure out the funny on the day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. And it's not a funny camera. Like, you know, him hanging out the window, that crazy camera move they they would never Mm. do that these days. Cause it, like, what did that it's take? So that good. probably took a day and a half of filming to do a weird camera flip as as a dumb gag. But yeah, you'd never do that these days. All right. Well, let's make a flip to the dramatic. It's Little Nikita, and that's coming up after the break. 
Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog who no. likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something, Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. With the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989 and the Soviet Union already visibly collapsing, the Cold War was already well-trodden territory for the movies. But with everything winding down, Hollywood found a new way to mine an old terror for box office gold. Ebert, in his one-and-a-half-star review, accused the filmmakers of attempting to concoct a cross-generational formula to appeal to both boomers and Gen Xers by buddying up a seasoned Hollywood pro with a young heartthrob with oodles of promise. Sidney Poitier, and River Phoenix. Although Little Nikita proved to be a massive bomb, the combination went so well, they did it again a few years later. Now, Cam, you recommended this one to me, and I quite enjoyed it, but Allison, you have different thoughts on <laughs> Little Nikita. I'm excited to hear about Listen, this. I had never seen Little Nikita, which was shocking to me, because mm -hmm. I love Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix in a spy movie. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yes. Sneakers is... Uh, one of my all-time favies. Mm. I loved, I thought I had seen everything River Phoenix was in. I vaguely remember this movie, um, like the name of it, but I knew nothing about it. And so going in, I was tremendously excited. Uh -huh. There's a cast of people I love. Yeah. There's, this is my everything. And I'm not saying I, I didn't in some ways enjoy watching <laughs> it because what is happening in <laughs> Yeah. This was a poop. And I Cam knows I'm very yeah. easy on movies. This Yeah, for her to not like it is a pretty harsh judgment. It was very bad. Oh, see, I still <laughs> like it. Bad. I think I think there's some fun elements. I think what I like is a lot of the cinema cinema very taste stuff. I like the chemistry between Sydney Prodigy mm. and R River Phoenix. I think that's all really fun. Um, and I always love an attempt at a spy thriller where the this uh, the person who is the bad guy has a ridiculous name. In this case, Same. Scuba, which does not yeah. exactly it's inspire terror. The worst. And they never fully, they're like, they always kind of are like teasing that they're going to tell you why it's scuba and why that's awesome. And it doesn't make any sense. Never. No, yeah. no. Well, um, let's give people a brief idea about what this is about, Allison. Can you run us through the plot? Absolutely. So River Phoenix, all American boy. Um, for some reason, he and his friends are stoked to sign up for the Air Force. Yes. Like they are very excited about it. 
Um, we know that River Phoenix is a good boy, but he looks a little bit on the edge. He drops mm-hmm. too fast. He doesn't always come home when he says he will to his parents. His parents run a nursery. They're just lovely flower growing. They love being American. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he, he, Sidney Poitier, who is an FBI agent, but uh, also it, in the his job description is never fully. I think I think he's pretending to be in the Air Force. I think he's pretending. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay, and so he is doing a background check on River Phoenix uh, because he's applied for the Air Force, and then oh, what? His parents uh, have identities of people that were born in the 1800s. Does not compute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does not. The computer in this is my favorite character. Even Ebert in 1998 points out that these this is not a screenwriter that understands how a computer works. In 1998, (laughs) no, it's so funny. And so Scuba, Poitier is the one who named Scuba. Mm. Um, Scuba killed his partner. Scuba killed his partner. It's a very big deal. And sometimes Mm. when he talks about his partner, I'm like, were they dating? I don't understand. (laughs) Uh, But he, it it turns out, Reverend Fanny's parents probably Russian sleeper agents. Mm -hmm. And so what would you do as an FBI agent, you would tell their son, yeah. their teenage son, and recruit him to help you. Side note, Scuba's gone rogue. Mm-hmm. He's killing all the other sleeper agents. So now the Russians are also like, hey, we're all after Scuba. Yeah. Uh, it's coming from all sides. Uh, Scuba, what a, everything about it is weird. And um, but everyone's gonna get together. Because now River Phoenix's parents' life are in danger, mm-hmm. and we got to save them. And he's I, the the pawn, sort of. Yeah, I do yeah. have to say that neither River Phoenix nor Sidney Poitier are phoning this in. This is an interesting part in a uh, place in Sidney Poitier's career because he had gone on hiatus for like sixteen years from appearing in films. He had directed a couple, but he from actually being in movies. Apparently, there was starting to be like a bunch of extremely vicious reviews about his performances, and he just went, "All right, well then, I'm just not going to perform." So he comes back and he does this and he does another movie called Shoot to Kill, which is another spy thriller movie. So obviously he is like, I am now a man in my 60s. I am making spy movies. Though one would argue that this is not written like a man. (laughs) His age versus this character is definitely one of the weird parts of this movie. Um, And from everything from him being uh, seducing Loretta Devine, his, his guidance counselor, to him being super into playing basketball with River Phoenix. It's like, dude, you're you're kind of an old man. Like, uh, he does not play it like a what kind of guy about to retire or something, you know? No, I literally had no idea how old he was supposed to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. It I was like, this, like he's like 40, 45 is what he's supposed to be, but this is a man in his 60s. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, so it, yeah, it does not compute. Um, I will say this. They, I mean, everyone... Maybe not everyone. Most people in this movie, yeah, are doing great performances. But the storyline does not fall together mm. in in a way that makes sense. We don't really know. I mean, we know Scuba killed his partner, but like, okay, so what happened there? Scuba's killing the sleeper agents because he wants two hundred thousand dollars from the Russians to not do it. No, he wants. I think that he wants something different. He wants like the Russians to apologize because remember they like essentially give him the two hundred dollars or two hundred thousand, and he he kills the guy and leaves the the key. He want he, he wants him to apologize. I think I think he wants he wants to face to face with the Russian guy who's kind of after him. 
the handler. Constantine? Yeah. he Because that's the whole thing. Is like he's offended that Constantine sends an errand boy to give him the money, kind of, you know? The the jovial right. guy on the ferry that gets the staff. Yes, no, yeah. that... Okay, see, this is the other thing. I, there's a lot of things where I'm like, I don't understand what's happening. No, here. Like, I, people well, are think, very um, invested. Have you ever seen, like, Blowout? I think that that's the Scuba thing. It's like, Scuba's just gone psycho. He, he doesn't right. want anything. He's just completely lost it. Um, but yeah, the closest you kind of get is that he he wants to be like he wants Constantine, is and that's why he's killing the sleeper agents. Okay, but yeah, there's no Listen. explanation. I don't think Scuba Scuba barely talks. <laughs> I no, I don't. I don't even know. Yeah, he has yeah. maybe says five words, and and that guy does look like such a creepy violent yes. weirdo, and so good for you. Um, I think, yeah, there's just so many things about the way I understand Sidney Poitier wanting to use River Phoenix to kind of spy on his parents, Mm -hmm. but just flat out telling him like, oh, by the way, your parents are Russian sleeper agents. I was like, is that, is that how we do it? I I mean, (laughs) no, his, his spy stuff doesn't make much sense. I do think that part of the thing is like the, the reason why he goes after him first is he assumes that they have like raised him to be a Russian yes. super soldier. And then he realizes that the kid has no idea what's going on. And that the um, parents have essentially defected from Russia. Like yeah. The parents aren't yes. even really sleeper agents at this point anymore. And they probably shouldn't have had a kid. Like that seems like that was a, a mistake that the Russians are using to uh, leverage them. Yes. Yeah. It's very interesting because like you think about where we are sitting in 88 and like they know Russian sleeper agents are probably a thing, Mm -hmm. but it's but there's really no confirmation that like there's nothing in the news about like sleeper agents being discovered or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And wildly, it's not even until 2010 where they have that big bust of all these Russian sleeper agents, which is what inspired the Americans that like they genuinely knew this was an like the general public knew this wasn't just a speculation. This was an actual network of Russian sleeper agents. They were waiting to be activated. So it's wild that, like, the speculation is happening in 88, but we don't really get confirmation until 2010 that, oh, yeah, Yeah. this was happening. Yeah, there's one guy in the 90s that's not quite the same. But, yeah, it's interesting. And it's also interesting that, like, I'm kind of fascinated to know that that everyone that they've caught is a Russian. But it's like, certainly that means that other places are doing it and getting away with it, right? Like, like certainly <laughs> America's doing it in Russia and we probably just don't hear about it. It seems like all we need to do is just find the right FBI agent who will play a game with oh basketball God. with us and explain it to us. It'll be fine. What's interesting, too, is that 1988 was the year Nelson DeMille's book, The Charm School, came out. Mm. And The Charm School is about an American in Russia who stumbles upon... It's essentially a POW camp, Mm. but where the Americans that have been captured, they've built like a little fake America and they're training the sleeper agents Mm. to go to the U.S. And so something there, I mean, there must have been a lot of rumors or suspicions and, and a lot of things coming out at that point in the 80s. Yeah. Because it was a big, um, inspiration yeah. for a lot of entertainment even the i mean the manchurian candidates kind of the original uh then that's been around for 20 mm-hmm. years so even in fiction that idea has been around free you know extreme soviet rule i would say well this is a movie that was inherited by david putnam um and he hated it because he hated just about everything he inherited at columbia Fascinating guy. He's the guy who uh, came over from the UK 
after um, listen, you can listen to our episode about this uh, earlier where we talk about it with um, uh, vibes. We talk about his his love of vibes and his love of Cindy Lauper. But he comes in and he decides that he is going to completely change Hollywood. He hates the Hollywood system. He thinks it's a good old boys club, and he only wants weird unusual stuff that breaks the mold, like, for example, Bugsy Malone or Mm. uh, Oscar winner Chariots of Fire. Like, he is there to just bust everything up. He has way more misses than he does hits, but he really just wants to try things out. And this was when he inherited, hated it from the beginning, but he genuinely tried to fix it and then just went, there's this thing is beyond help. And then they just released it in part because of River Phoenix's popularity and they knew they would Mm. get box office based on River Phoenix. Um, because at this point, when you think where River Phoenix was in his career, like we are in full heartthrob territory. Yeah. And this year is like him being a Hollywood star with uh, a night with Jimmy Reardon. And and he gets he's actually up against Kevin Klein for the Oscars and running on empty, which is interesting. This is how you know how bad this movie is. (laughs) (laughs) This movie cost 15 million dollars to make. Mm. It made one point seven, I think, million Uh at the box office. I am the age to be obsessed with River Phoenix. And at this time, are you kidding me? I never saw this movie. I never, not even the the power of River Phoenix (laughs) was getting teen girls into this audience, which is not shocking when you watch the movie because then you go, Mm. it's just, it just feels so piecemeal. And at one point I went, Wow, this movie must be really slow paced because I feel like we're still setting up the story and how and then I look, there was only half an hour left in the movie. Yeah. And I was like, wait. It does seem like they cut stuff out. Um, I also do wonder sometimes there's like handshake deals. One of the weird things about this movie and this year and River Phoenix is that this movie kind of has a lot in common with Running on Empty. Like Running on Empty is about essentially like the child of members of like the weather underground uh, and them being fugitives from the law and him kind of bristling against having to live under his, what his parents did. So I do Mm. wonder sometimes there's these handshake deals to not really distribute a movie. That's kind of the bad version of the movie you're trying to promote Uh, running on empty. Mm. I know this came out before running on empty, but um, yeah, I I do wonder if there's something there because I know a night with Jimmy Reardon, I think is also pretty, uh, people hate it and, and got got pretty scuttled on release. There's a very weird gap in his like he's for someone who passed away as young as he did. There's mm. like he's extremely prolific. Like you look, he's yeah. got mm-hmm. like four to five movies every year. But mm-hmm. there's a gap in between 86. There's nothing for for 87. He's got yeah. four movies in 86, including Bull Stand By Me and, uh, and Mosquito Coast. And then he's got three for 88. And then from there on in, he's like basically doing yeah. three to four coming up. Um, he also has an interview for Running on Empty where he says that he learned he could say no to movies in Little Nicky. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. He had achieved, I, achieved enough. <laughs> I, yeah, I yes. mean, you really get that he, this is basically him, this chunk of, it's like Hollywood trying for him to be a star, which I think would have worked, but he has no interest in it. Because essentially, from here on out, other than his quick cameo in The Last Crusade, uh, yeah. It's he goes straight into indie stuff. Basically, yeah, there's I mean, not, sneakers is the next big yes, one, and that's it. And that's I think because he's friends with Poitier, and it's a big deal, and you know every actor's in it. But yeah, and it's such yeah. a fun movie, and he's so cute. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I mean, I guess also I love you to death, but you do hear this weird thing that him and Kevin Klein were like he he loved Kevin Klein. Apparently, it's quite cute when Kevin Klein wins the Oscar. He like he goes crazy because he like really wanted Kevin Klein to win the Oscar instead of him. Uh, so that's like a charming moment but yeah from then on out it's all you can tell he's really choosing what he wants to do 
Yeah, he's got a very similar kind of path as um, Johnny Depp. Like when you look yeah, at sure. him and Johnny Depp's career, they and especially the fact they were they both wanted to be rock stars, like that was the original goal. Mm. Like very, very similar paths. Same floppy hair, same um, swerve in the late '80s, early '90s into the indie world, and just mm. like almost accidental superstars. Like it's really yeah. interesting. And I think he would have. He might have dropped out harder than just about anybody. Like I don't know that he, if he had lived, he would have even stayed an actor his whole time. He he was a much stranger person, I think in a good way, uh, like much more introspective and unusual than I think just about any actor. And I think sometimes you're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, Joaquin grew up under the same circumstances. It's like, not really. Joaquin was really a child when they yeah, moved to much Hollywood. Younger. And River yeah. was basically supporting their family from the age of yeah. five on. And like, I, that's you how could that tell that he was kind of hating Hollywood. Like those interviews too, because he ne- never really minced words either. Uh, mm-hmm. he was already starting to really hate the machine a lot. And he also, I mean, that I, they also gr- grew up in that cult, which is uh, yeah. very weird. And, but uh, yeah, cause I can't see had River Phoenix lived. I can't see him doing a Disney franchise. No, uh, no. You know, yeah. so I think he and Johnny Depp certainly veered on that front. Um, <laughs> River Phoenix but- as Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's the one who's in uh, Indiana Jones 5 and there's a time travel machine and that's oh, what God, happens. Yeah. He goes oh, back and mm, sees himself. Mm, I I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> I, look, the important thing is he did a thing called love. That's all I care about. Sure. Um, I love that movie so much. Anyway, can we just real quick talk about the ending in this movie? Though? Of course we can. Sure. Please go ahead, Allison. Bring it up. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Everyone ends up... First of all, no one's good at shooting guns in this movie. Uh, everyone ends up on a trolley. I don't understand what happens. Oh, We're yeah. making trades. Listen, Bonte all of a sudden is like, I don't care about the sleeper agents. Now, little Nikita is my son. Mm-hmm. I yeah. will save my baby. What is going on? I mean, I think that him saying he doesn't care is a ploy to shoot. No, the I fucking know. Guy. <laughs> but I, no, I, but I, I mean, he doesn't yeah. care that they're Russian sleeper agents anymore. He no. just lets them go and live their lives. I mean, I think he's like, well, I, I'm not even going to bring this up with anyone. Yeah, I think well, he does. Because they've redeemed he just wants, he just wants revenge too. I mean, I think I also wonder how much they, they didn't seem to do anything. Right. Like they, they weren't, do no. they weren't being seditious or anything. I think they just slept and kind of didn't, but uh, yeah, I do. I, I think the FBI still cares. I like, <laughs> what yeah. do you think? I like some of the the border crossing stuff. I think one of the things that is very confusing is just in the world we live in today, you couldn't take, they, they essentially take the city bus to the border of Mexico and like walk across like it's, whoa, who cares? Which is crazy. I think you, but I'm pretty sure you can still walk across oh, the border. Oh, you can walk across, but I'm sure that there'd be 1,000 guys with like rifles and shit, you know? I, I um, think that's coming back yeah. though. Oh, fair. But uh, I don't think you would get the dead guy across the border. I do think that was I mean, I think that he's pulling some FBI strings to get the dead guy. I mean, Weekend at Bernie's is what? 86, 87? So it's Speaking of great farces. But yeah, I I do like, I like some parts of it. And I do like the fact that, uh, like, the weird thing is also you kind of forgive Constantine, even though Constantine was creepy and evil, uh, especially towards the end, like threatening to kill River Phoenix's girlfriend and stuff. But, um, I do like at the end that he gets the shot of like uh, when he's leaving Sidney Poitier, he's like, you know, a Russian would never shoot at a kid. <laughs> like, so stupid. That's uh, funny. I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I do like that that end set piece just because it's kind of weird and tense. 
I'll say this, the feeling of the movie, I sort of liked because it was very 80s nostalgic. And like, as soon as it opened, I was like, oh, remember when movies used to open like this? Remember childhood? Um, And so, and there wasn't like, it's not, look, there's some movies I watch and I hate and it's torture watching them. And this wasn't torture watching. I was just the whole time going, I don't understand it's because it's happening. Make why we're doing this. <laughs> it's nothing fits together. Yeah, it feels like they shot two more hours of this movie and mm. then just chopped up random bits. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe you can just fill in the blanks for yourself. You know what they wanted to make room for? Fangirls who were going to write their own like little Nikita fan fiction. They were going to fill in mm. the gaps about what happens sure. to him afterwards. Yeah. That's what it's there for. Mm. Yeah, and I do think it's like the plus side is he had so few performances, and I do think it like he is giving it his all. And there are funny moments. I, I like that he, you know, wh- what you immediately think is a modern audience. And you're like, oh, this is such a sweet old movie that they don't even think that it's weird. An old man is hanging out with a kid. But I like that he's immediately like, listen, some other guy hung out with me. Are you gay? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> River Phoenix is wise to the fact that he is a beautiful young man that will attract <laughs> gay men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the bus boy at the country club. I love that. That is the perfect place for us to end this episode. So once again, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us on this one and suggesting the movies. Hey, no problem. I hope I didn't torture you too hard, Allison. Oh, no, I I loved every minute of not (laughs) loving it. And and sweet. Everything about this movie, Cam, and Cam knows my taste in movies Mm. very well, should have added up to me being thrilled. I should have been coming in here going to bat for this movie even i was shocked that i was like no it's you didn't even hold it together enough for me guys but thoroughly enjoyed watching it excellent that's that's all we care about now allison you have a lot of things people can thoroughly enjoy please point people towards them monday to friday from 3 to 5 p.m eastern time you can join me on the breakdown channel 167 on sirius xm oh is sometimes cam there yes. he sure is he's our hollywood sweet movie expert mm-hmm. And um, you can also check out Howl and Roar Records, which is my comedy record label. We are on socials at Howl underscore Roar or HowlandRoarRecords.com. Beautiful. Thank you very much. And you can join us in two weeks where things are going to get a little weird and a little messed up. It's Pin, The Plastic Nightmare, and Lady in White. And we're going to be joined by Harlan Guthrie. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Allison Dorr as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.